Good morning, High Point. Again, good to see you. Thank you for those who are here in person. We also thank you for those who are joining us online. This morning, we're going to continue in our series from the book of John, and we're going to be reading from John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. So in preparation, you want to go ahead and turn there. We'll get back to that in a few minutes. While you're doing that, I think it's safe for me to say that probably every one of us at some point in our life has either used a guide or some kind of a template in assembling or building or constructing something. As an example, a person who sews clothing, who makes clothing, they often use a pattern. Uh, When I took architectural classes, there were templates available for drawing different types of lettering for use when drawing floor plans and the different schematics. And when our our new high point sign that's on the front of our building was put up a couple years ago, there was a paper template that was taped to the wall of the front of our building for the uh, sign installers to know where to drill the holes to make sure that the sign was level. So templates are a very important thing in life. And the reason I bring all this up is because in this morning's text, we are going to read about John's account of the Jesus calling of his first disciples. And in the circumstances surrounding uh, their calling, I believe it creates what I think to be a template for discipleship. Because you will find within this passage, uh, there's highlighted three things that we need to understand in order for us to be authentic disciples of Christ in our day. I'm talking about being the kind of, of, of Christ's followers who say the things we're supposed to say and who do the things that we are supposed to do. But before we get into our text, let me give you a little bit of background on what we're about to read. It begins on the third day of Jesus' earthly ministry. And according to John's tally, by the end, by the time that the sun has set on the fourth day of Jesus' ministry, he has five disciples. Uh, Their names are Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. They're the very first Christ followers. And of course, we all know that soon he will have a total of 12. Have you ever wondered why Jesus started with 12 disciples? and not 20 or 30 or, or 100? I know that I have. Why, why a dozen? Well, many biblical st- scholars believe that Jesus surrounded himself with 12 disciples for symbolic reasons. The premise was that originally there were the 12 tribes of Israel, so these 12 disciples were symbolic of the new Israel. Also, have you wondered why Jesus had or needed followers in the first place? I mean, he is God in the flesh, He created this universe and literally everything in it. So why does he need a group of close followers anyway? Well, I believe in Mark chapter 3, verses 14, you get an answer to that question when it says this. He appointed the 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. So first Jesus said that he did this so that the 12 might be with him. In other words, one reason that Jesus chose followers in the first place was that he wanted companionship. He wanted to have fellowship. Any person in a leadership capacity understands this because you learn very quickly that when you are in a position of leadership, it can be a very lonely place. And the higher the position of leadership, the deeper that loneliness becomes. In fact, you could say that that is the price of leadership. That's why the presidency of the United States is said to be the most forsaken place in all the world. President Harry Truman once said, this is a lonely job. 
Everybody who comes to see me wants, to do, wants me to do something for them. No one comes to see me for fellowship. Well, as the Messiah, I think it would be natural for Jesus to crave fellowship as he went about his father's business. And this is not diminishing Jesus' divinity in any way, shape, or form. Because if you look back at Genesis chapter 1, you'll see something. The reason that God created mankind was to have fellowship with him. Not because he needed fellowship. God doesn't need anything. He created mankind because he wanted to have fellowship. He wants you to know him, and he wants to know you. And that's a wonderful thing. Let's go back to Mark 3.14 because it mentions the second reason in that same verse why Jesus called his disciples. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. So he appointed 12 so they might first be with him and secondly that he might send them out so that they can preach. Did you know that that's what the word apostle means? Apo means away and stolos means sent. So these men were sent away from Jesus with his message. They were to be the means by which the good news of his love would be spread throughout the entire world. In short, these first 12 disciples were to fulfill the original function of the original 12 tribes of Israel. Isaiah 49, 6 says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So with all that in mind, let's take our Bibles and let's follow along as we read John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. If you don't have a Bible with you today, it will be up on the screen behind me, and you can follow along. We're going to be reading from the New International Version this morning. It says, The next day John, John the Baptist, was there again with two of his disciples, When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. 
This morning, I want to see what we can learn about following Jesus from these first five who did exactly that. I also want to show you how this text serves as kind of a template for discipleship. By using the the written recorded calling of these first Christ followers, I want to point out three things that should be able to be said about all authentic disciples of Christ. And the first one is quite simple. A growing Christian spends time with Jesus. Verse 35 through 37 says that when John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, look, the Lamb of God, two of his disciples left and followed him. As I told you last week, this would have pleased John the Baptist. It would have brought him great joy because he knew he was doing his job. He was doing the good work that God had called him and prepared him to do, and that was to point people to Jesus. Well, verse 40 tells us that one of these two disciples who left John the Baptist to follow Jesus was Andrew. Tradition says that the other one was John, the apostle, the one whose gospel we have been studying now for the last couple of weeks and will be for many weeks to come. By the way, this is the first of many veiled references to John that we will see in his gospel. He usually refers to himself as simply the disciple Jesus loved. And that always puts a smile on my face because it makes me wonder, did Jesus really have a more special, a deeper relationship with John than he had with the other disciples? And was this John's way of letting us know that? I'm not certain, but I love how he always says the the disciple that Jesus loved, almost as though he didn't love the others when, when we know he did. But that's just my mind working. I always get a kick out of that when I read it. But in any case, Andrew and John asked Jesus, where he was staying, and Jesus invited them to come and see, and so of course they did. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon, and John and Andrew spent the day with him, and one can imagine they probably talked into the wee hours of the morning. Well, those hours spent with Jesus was all it took for those guys to sign on the dotted line to say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm following you. From that moment on, they followed Jesus. That first day led to three years, and ultimately it, it, it led to their entire lifetime serving the Lord. And that reminds us that discipleship, following Christ Jesus, is built on time spent with him. Let me put it this way. You cannot be a growing disciple of Christ unless you know Christ. It's impossible. And you can't know Jesus until you consistently spend time with him. Now, in those days, all kinds of people, both Jews and Gentiles, had disciples, Two Greek words that are commonly used were didaskalo, which means teacher, and mathetes, which means pupil, or it means disciple. It was impossible to be a teacher if you didn't have a pupil or if you didn't have disciples. It was equally impossible to be a disciple if you did not have a teacher. So teachers would gather their disciples around them and discuss their particular perspective of life. Theirs was a philosophy-based relationship. So for a Greek teacher of Stoicism, they would gather disciples that would want to learn about their Stoic perspective on life. And Jewish rabbis would do the same thing. They They would bring in disciples who wanted to learn their personal perspective on the law, meaning they wanted to know what the rabbi's personal interpretation of the laws about the Sabbath were. So understand back then, For everyone but Jesus, 
The teacher-disciple relationship was based on a particular philosophy. It was based on a particular way of thinking. But with Jesus, it was different. Because as I said a moment ago, he invited people to follow him in order to be with them. For Jesus, discipleship was and still is not based on some philosophy, but rather it is based upon a personal relationship with him. So when you boil it all down, Christian discipleship is being with Jesus. It helps to develop our Christian worldview, and it is based on time that we spend in the presence of our Lord. We don't just study his teachings. We don't just study his philosophy. We study him and we relate to him through a personal relationship. Authentic, growing Christ followers are always focused on spending more time and with our Lord, allowing his spirit to, to guide us in our study of his written word, spending time in his presence in worship, and especially spending time in conversational prayer. That's how you get to know him. With these three spiritual disciplines, we learn to deepen our walk and our friendship with Christ. And that relationship enables us to become more like him. Christians who spend regular, regular time with Jesus versus those who don't are different. It's kind of like the difference between taking communion with a real piece of bread versus that styrofoam tasting wafers that we use in those throwaway communion cups. You know what I mean? Those wafers are, are flavorless. They, they do feel like styrofoam in your mouth. But you see, a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, it brings flavor into your life. It develops a quality within you. It teaches us how to respond to life's trials and, and life's tribulations. It empowers us to resist temptation and the many different fronts and the very, various forms that it takes. We learn to pray more effectively until we eventually find ourselves communicating with Jesus all the time. In these conversations, in this deepening of that relationship, our Lord even tells us what to say. So little by little, we become more and more like him. When I was in high school in Michigan, where I grew up, there was this new kid who moved into town from California. In those days, anybody who moved from California was just coolest thing on the face of the earth. But then I moved here and realized that's not true at all. <laughs> you just like Michiganders. You just have to talk a little different. That's all. And you don't have lakes around you everywhere. But this kid was flat out cool. He was the coolest thing we had seen come down the pike. Everybody wanted to know this guy. Everyone wanted to be like this guy. And it's funny. I remember him, but for the life of me, I cannot remember his name or I'd tell you what his name was. Maybe he's watching online. If it is, sorry, he can't remember your name. But I do remember a particular phrase that he used to use all the time. Instead of saying yes, or instead of saying I agree or I concur or whatever, he'd simply say, I'm hip. Someone would say, isn't she pretty? I'm hip. Are you going to go to the game tonight? I'm hip. You could always tell when someone was hanging around this guy, because what would be coming out of their mouth all day long? I'm hip. He'd rub off on anybody who would hang around with him. Now that was a lame example, I understand, but it helps me to make my point. It is essential 
for Christ followers to spend regular, consistent time with Jesus because it makes us more like him. By definition, a Christian disciple is someone who is not world-like, but who becomes more Christ-like. And furthermore, the level of Christ-likeness that you bear is dependent upon the time that you spend relating to him. Here's another illustration. Let's say you want to become a world-class bodybuilder. You'd find somebody who was successful at it. You'd ask for their advice, and you'd be like a little shadow to them, and you'd watch what they do. You would eat what they eat, and you would eat when they ate. You would work out when they worked out. You may bench, he may bench press 550 pounds, and you may not be able to get 75 above your body, but you still work out alongside of them. When they rested, you would rest. Whatever they would do, you would do. And, and when they finished, you would finish. And how long do you think it would take before this round-the-clock therapy took effect? And you found that your body was changing, your muscle structure was changing. Well, it might take literal months, but eventually, over time, you would start to, you would start to see the results. Well, Jesus, he offers us the very same opportunity. We can live around the clock in his presence as we learn to do what the scriptures say, to pray without ceasing, regularly praying throughout our day for strength, for guidance, for wisdom, even for, for knowing what ne our next step should be in, in an important thing that's going on in our life. It's simply connecting with him throughout the day. It's an essential requirement for discipleship. It's a part of this template that I'm talking about. So how are you doing in this area? How is your relationship with Jesus? How close are the two of you? How much time do you spend together with him every day? When was the last time you talked to him? How familiar are you with his book, the written word of God, the Bible? How well do you recognize his still small voice? How would you know it if you're not spending any time with him? The truth is you don't even have to answer those questions. And I'll tell you why. Because time with Jesus or the lack of time with Jesus shows. It shows in how you live your life. It shows in how you respond to people. It shows in just about everything that you do. Well, here's the second part of the discipleship template that we find in this text. Number two, a growing Christian is content with whatever Jesus asked them to do. Their relationship with Jesus is their top priority, and what they care about in life the most is pleasing him. They only care about doing what he tells them to do. Therefore, it doesn't matter if other people see what they're doing or not. They know that Jesus sees, and that's enough for them. I'm saying you cannot be an authentic disciple of Christ and at the same time constantly be seeking the spotlight. That kind of uh, ambition, I believe, is contradictory to a growing relationship with Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. That does not mean that there's no such thing as a Christian in the spotlight. I mean, look at the late Billy Graham. Look at, at Mother Teresa. Neither of them were seeking out the spotlight, but God provided it for them. He saw they, they were both humble human beings, and, and, and they stood in the spotlight only because God offered them that spotlight, and they did tremendous things while in that spotlight. Plus, you've got to understand something. For every disciple, 
that is in the spotlight, there are thousands and millions of others who are content to simply work behind the scenes. They continually work in less noticeable, but equally and sometimes even more important tasks than those in the spotlight. And a perfect example of this in our text is Andrew. His life shows that a genuine encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ produces an attitude of contentment in whatever service they are given by the Lord to do. I say this because even though Andrew was the protocletos, he was the first called, the first disciple that Jesus enlisted, even though he was the first to, reconcile, to recognize Jesus as Lord, even, uh, Andrew never achieved the fame that his brother Peter did. I want you to think about it. During his years as a disciple, Andrew was never included in Jesus' close inner circle. Unlike Peter, James, and John, he was not taken up on the Mount of Transfiguration, nor was he invited in with Jesus when he healed the daughter of Jairus. Andrew wasn't asked to go with Jesus when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested. Peter never preached like, or excuse me, Andrew never preached like his brother Peter. He never recorded a gospel like Matthew or John. He was never recognized by the early church like James was. Peter's name appears in the four gospels 96 times. Only Jesus is mentioned more than Peter. But Andrew, the first, he's only found in there 14 times. And most of the time, it's either a list or it's just being referred to as Peter's brother. Peter is consistently at the center of attention. There are numerous accounts of things that he said, things that he did, but scripture only records Andrew doing three things. Now, it takes a great deal of, of grace to play second fiddle, especially when it's your brother who's playing first fiddle. But I believe that Andrew must have learned to walk in a special kind of grace because he doesn't seem to be bothered by this arrangement at all. I mean, in, in a similar situation, most of us would have considered ourselves slighted, but apparently not Andrew. He didn't feel that way. He was, just a, he was just happy and humble to be a part of the 12. And contemporary disciples like you and I, we need to learn what Andrew learned. People who work behind the scenes in God-given tasks play essential roles in God's kingdom. And God used Andrew in a powerful way, even though he did not achieve the popularity that his brother did. Think about it. Andrew not only brought his brother to Jesus, but he also directed the inquiring Greeks to Jesus. And that really makes him the first home and foreign missionary of the New Testament. Did you know it was Andrew who led the boy with the box lunch to Jesus and, and, and because of that simple act, our Lord was able to feed nearly 15,000 people from that box of, of loaves and fishes. It was a miracle that has been used to show that, for people to understand that Jesus was and continues to be the bread of life, that he satisfies the, the hunger inside of all of us to have a relationship with God. Tradition says it was Andrew who prompted John to write his gospel. 
You remember in week one, I said John wrote his gospel very late in life, much after the other gospels writers had written theirs. Well, tradition says he was the one that encouraged John to do this. So God used Andrew's out-of-the-spotlight ministry in amazing ways, and that's what he does today. He operates in all ministries in amazing ways, even the ones you see or know nothing about, even those actions and those tasks that will not be known by others until we stand in God's presence. You know, it usually takes more of a person to be second than to be first. And I think we really clearly see this in Andrew's life because it seems to me that he was more spiritually mature than his brother, Peter. I believe he was more loyal. I think he had a clearer self-awareness than his brother had. I believe that he even had a healthier self-esteem than Peter. And I think more of us need to learn to be like Andrew. We need to be willing to work behind the scenes and get when we, in those places and doing those things in which we receive absolutely no earthly acclaim. Too many of us want to serve only if people notice our service. And we tend to shun those tasks that go unseen. In our minds, we have, we have made them to be of less or no importance at all. Listen, friends, the self-centered attitude like that is not in this template that we're talking about this morning. To be a true disciple of Jesus, you must be content with wherever it is that he has you, whatever it is that he offers you to do, knowing that in his eyes, no one is more loved than another. We are all equal in his eyes. And, and, and the seconds are just as valuable as first. In the late 15th century, Albrecht Dürer and his friends Franz Nykstein were studying to be artists. But their art lessons greatly suffered as the two of them spent the majority of their time trying to eke out a living. So the two of these guys had this idea that they would draw lots and they would decide who would study art full time while the other one would continue to work full time to support the cause. Well, drawing of these lots determined that Albrecht would study art full time while his close friend Franz would spend all of his time working in order for him to go to school and to be able for both of them to eat and to have a place to stay. Then when Albrecht had completed his studies and became a successful artist, they would reverse places. Albrecht would then work while Franz studied art. Well, Albrecht finished his course work and eventually his work became acclaimed. It was then he did, did, did returned to change places with his dear friend. But when he arrived, he discovered what a great sacrifice Franz had made for him. The work he had been doing was, was so arduous, it was such manual labor that his fingers and his sensitive hands had become permanently damaged, almost crippled. It was no longer for, able for Franz to become an artist, and yet there was no bitterness about that to be found in his heart at all. His happiness was his joy in knowing that he made Albrecht's successful career as an artist possible. One day, Albrecht saw Franz kneeling, and he was praying, and his rough and gnarled hands were clasped together in silent prayer. And as he listened, he could hear him praying, and he was praying for his friend, for his continued success as a commercial artist.
Albrecht captured that image in his mind, and later he began to sketch those rough, torn-up hands. And out of that preliminary drawing came what is perhaps Albrecht's most famous painting, simply but movingly entitled, Praying Hands. And it was Franz Nijkstein who worked behind the scenes and who made it possible for the world to see the remarkable work of Albrecht Dürer. Because without Franz Nijkstein, Albrecht Dürer might have never become an artist. And in the same way, without Andrew, there would never have been a Peter. So if you ever feel unappreciated by your peers, even though you work hard for our Lord, please remember Andrew and remember countless, countless others like him and determine to stop worrying about public acclaim. Remind yourself that as an authentic disciple of Christ that you must learn to die to yourself and you play and you serve and you worship for an audience of one. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This won't be hard. Because like Andrew, when you encounter Jesus, when you spend time with him, your joy is found in doing his will, whatever that is. Jesus said in Matthew 20, 26 and 27, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. When we serve with this kind of an attitude, it shows that we are in a relationship with Christ and that he is in fact rubbing off on us, and that we are in fact becoming more Christ-like. Jesus himself laid this out in Matthew 20, 28. He said, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So to review, according to our template for discipleship, authentic Christ followers first spend time with Jesus. Secondly, they are content with whatever task Jesus gives them to accomplish. But we see one more aspect of discipleship in our text. Number three, growing Christians have the desire to tell others about Jesus. We see this in the fact that the first thing that Andrew and John did after they met Christ was to go to their brothers and to tell them about him. Philip's first action was the same. After meeting Jesus, he immediately went to his friend Nathaniel and he invited him to come and to see Jesus. And this shows that a genuine encounter with Jesus Christ will produce within us a yearning to tell others about him. And the better we know him, the deeper this yearning will become within us. When we realize that the story of Jesus is the good news that everybody desperately needs to hear. I remember back in my single days, Lisa wasn't a part of my life yet. I had a friend named Richard. Richard uh, and I shared apartments in the same complex. How we became friends. He's my accountant to this day. We spent a lot of time as single young men commiserating over how we couldn't just seem to find the right person. You know, just couldn't find him. We dated like crazy. Nobody ever, you know, it's like, why am I doing this? You know, well, then Lisa entered my life. I couldn't wait to tell Richard about her. In fact, the truth is I couldn't wait to tell anybody, everybody about her because she was so special. 
I, I wanted to tell anybody that would listen about this incredible person because next to my relationship with Jesus Christ, she's the best thing that's ever happened to me. And the exact same thing happens when we get into a relationship with Christ. That meeting ignites a desire for us to want to tell others about him. It's like the woman at the well. Once she met Jesus, this woman who had spent years avoiding people, she ran to everyone in town. This is what she said in John 4, 29. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Let me just stop and ask you this morning. Do you remember having the desire to tell others about Jesus? Do you still have that same excitement? Do you still have that same desire? Or like so many Christians, have you suppressed that urge to the point that you no longer feel compelled to share your faith with other people? The late Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, once said, millions of surveys which we have helped to take around the world indicate that approximately 98% of the Christians do not regularly introduce others to the Savior. In other words, they've stopped following this discipleship template. And one way I think that we tend to rationalize this desire away is by telling ourselves that the best way to tell others about Jesus is through these big evangelistic campaigns. You know those stadium events that are done by Franklin Graham, first by his dad, Billy Graham, now they're done by Franklin Graham and Greg Laurie. We look and we see the hundreds and sometimes thousands of people who come down those aisles at those crusades. And I really, I think it makes us think that our individual sharing with people is pointless. When the fact is that mass conversions, like what happened with Peter on the day of Pentecost, great movements of of people coming to God are usually accomplished one-on-one and not by those great big events that we're looking at. And and evangelists like Greg Laurie and, and Franklin Graham, they understand this. This is why their revivals have been so effective, because those campaigns are based upon stirring up individuals like you and I to invite our friends. And they come, and they hear the gospel. And if you've invited them, no doubt you've been praying that the Holy Spirit would touch their heart, would speak to them, and that they come forward and that they would respond. But understand something, each one of those thousands of people that may come forward at one of these big stadium events came because a Christ follower simply said to them, come and see, come and see. They come and they hear the gospel and they respond. Did you know that 70 to 90% of people who join any church in the United States of America come through the influence of a friend or a relative, or an acquaintance, not a pastor. Bill Bright also said, no amount of theological expression from the pulpit can overcome a lack of invitational expression from the pews. Your individual witness is far from pointless, High Point. It is far from that. So please don't stifle the desire to tell others about Christ. Be free to do so. In his book, titled Unchurched Harry and Mary, Lee Strobel makes the following observations about the 55 to 78 million adults in the United States who are unchurched. 
His comments are based on his work done by the Barna Group and also by Gallup polls. Observation number one, Harry and Mary have rejected church, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have rejected God because 91% of American women and 85% of American men say they pray. Observation number two, people are morally adrift, but secretly they want an anchor. They're looking for something to believe in that will give their lives a real center. Observation number three, they don't just ask, is Christianity true? Often they ask, does Christianity work? Observation number four, they don't just want to know something, they want to experience it. Observation number five, Harry and Mary don't want to be somebody's project, but they would like to be somebody's friend. Mechanical witnessing is not usually what will reach them. One-on-one -on -one relational evangelism is what does that. And what that simply means is, when I talk about sharing your faith, yeah, you can share it with strangers, but you all, every one of us, has family and friends that already know us. We have established credible relationships with them. We have many discussions about many different things, and yet we don't bring up the name of Jesus in those discussions. When if anybody is going to receive from you, it's going to be somebody that has a relationship with you, that knows you are a tried and true friend, and understands that you are only looking out for their best interest. Do you understand what I'm saying? I, I know street side evangelism. Do you know Jesus? Come here, let me talk to you. That works sometimes. Sometimes people will pray the sinner's prayer just to get you off their back. They'll do whatever they do because they're, they're surrounded by their friends. It's an awkward kind of a situation. I'm talking about personal, relational evangelism with people you've already broken the ice with, people that you already know. I share these observations with you so that you will see that within the realm of your daily influence, your coworkers, your neighbors, your, your friends and your family members, they want to hear the good news that you have been commissioned by God to share. They are open also to your witness and they want to know God. And let me just say something. I think that because of COVID, people are in a much different place right now than they were prior to it. I think they've seen the foundations of a lot of things they believed in crumble. And I think people are asking a lot of questions. And I believe what's going to come out of this is going to be a revival. And it's going to happen in the places, in the churches, where the people of faith say, I'm giving it the gas. We don't have much time left. I'm going to start sharing the goodness of God with people that I know. And we're going to see people getting saved. And those people getting saved because they're excited about their new relationship with Christ are going to go out and tell, just like the woman at the well, everyone else, and so on and so on. And we are going to see a growth in the church of Jesus Christ like we haven't seen in a long time. You see, people want something to build their lives upon. They, they have come to an understanding that the promises of this world are empty. The promises of this world are hollow. They want to hear your testimony. They want to know how Christianity works. They want to meet Jesus. And all the crusades of the world won't be as effective as you sharing with them one-on-one. -on -one. William Barclay tells a story about how at the turn of the century, Thomas Huxley, a great agnostic, was attending a party at a country mansion. 
In those days, the wealthy would invite friends to come and stay with them for several days after the dinner party. Well, Sunday came around, and in, in those days, the majority of the guests were preparing to go to church. Very naturally, Huxley was not. Instead, he approached a man who, would, who had been known to have a simple yet a radiant Christian faith. And Huxley said to him, suppose you don't go to church today. Suppose you stay home and tell me quite simply what your Christian faith means to you and why you are a Christian. The man replied, but you could demolish my arguments in an instant. I'm not clever enough to argue with you. And Huxley said gently, I don't want to argue with you. I just want you to tell me simply what this Christ means to you. So the man stayed at home, and he very simply, as Huxley asked, shared about his relationship with Jesus. And when he finished, there were literally tears in this great agnostic's eyes. But he said this, I would give my right hand if only I could believe that. There are millions upon millions of Huxleys out there in the world. People who need to hear about your experience with Christ. People who long to know that there is a God who loves them. Does that fact light a desire within you to want to tell them? Perhaps this morning God has put a face or a name on your heart as you've been listening to this message. Someone that you know who is not a Christ follower. Someone who needs to hear your personal witness. And I just want to say to you, you don't have to be, you don't have to wild them with theological facts and all kinds of doctrine. You just have to say like the early disciples did, come and see. One of the scriptures says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let me tell you what Jesus means to me. And let me tell you something. When you do that, God will do the rest. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak as you tell them about the amazing love of Christ. It's amazing because we get all worked up and we wonder what are we going to say. But let me tell you something. When that moment comes, the scriptures are true. You find things coming out of your mouth that you didn't even know you knew. But you heard it once. And the Lord filed it back in your spirit. And just that time it came out. And you sounded like Billy Graham out there and you don't even know it. And when it's all said and done, you kind of go back and go, my goodness, what in the world was that? Well, that wasn't you, my friend. That was the Holy Spirit. And he will give you the things to say. And he will show you how to respond. And he will give you a love in your heart that will come come through so strong and it will be so noticeable by that individual that they will take your words as the truth and they will abide by them. Scott, will you come forward? Help me to close, start to close this down. You know, it's no secret that I often encourage you to share your faith with others. And I have to tell you something that breaks my heart. I've had people roll their eyes at me in this church as I've looked out and as I've seen faces. I've seen the eye roll. And I guess I don't get that. I'm your pastor. 
And my job is to prepare the saints. And if you think that Red Bluff, California is going to get won by David Blythe, you're going to have a long wait. Red Bluff can only be won by the saints of God in this church and the saints of God in all the churches that meet throughout this city. I share this with you because it is a command from God. It is not a suggestion. It is a command. And I, and I fear that the modern-day church in America, we've just become kind of a consumer-driven people. We want to come. We want to hear the good news. We want to be entertained. We want to have all the nice niceties. And we want to be blessed. We want to prosper. We want all the gifts, the good things from God. But when, when I start talking about winning souls, I get eye rolls. I confess to you there was a time in my life when I did the same thing. Because if you're not doing something, and if you don't have a passion in your heart to do something, when these kind of words come to you, the natural response is, I don't even know quite what to do. He's right, I'm not doing this, so I'll just roll my eyes. Because I go, oh, come on, here, you're talking about this again. So I think it says a lot about the condition of our heart. Are we simply content knowing that we are saved and that we have received salvation. And when Jesus comes to take us home, we're gonna go with him. I don't think we should be. It's been said that every person ought to take one to heaven with him. The truth is we should take a hundred with us, but every one of us should at least take one. That means every follower in Christ should find that one individual and make them your mission field. Somebody that you know, somebody that you love, someone that you care about, someone that you don't want to see go through what we just talked about in that end time series during the Great Tribulation. Would you want an enemy to go through that? Those things that I shared with you, those horrific things that are going to happen, who would want anyone to go through that? Let that be your motivation. You got to take step one. Out of fear, we don't open our mouth. It's so funny. We go to a restaurant. We have a good experience. We'll tell everybody about that restaurant. We'll even tell them about a specific dish that we eat. You got to get that, man. That's to die for. Or we'll tell people about our dentist and how she's never hurt me once, man. Anything she's done has been gentle and whatever. You know, we've all had dentists that were rough as guts and whatever. But we tell them about our dentist. And if we had a good experience with a physician or we... we we had our baby through this position. We'll tell another pregnant couple, hey, go to Dr. So-and-so. He's the greatest. Why do we have a hard time doing that about Christ? Why does his name never get brought up in conversations that we have with one another? That's the million-dollar question today. My former pastor had a famous line. He said, find a need and fill it. Find a hurt and heal it. Tommy Barnett said that. Can I just say that the greatest need that anyone has is Christ Jesus. And furthermore, he's the only one that can heal those hurts. But if you haven't come to the point yet of understanding that the greatest need anyone has is Christ Jesus, then I would suggest to you that maybe you don't know him. I'd like to ask you all to stand to your feet if you would. 
And I just want to say that this altar is always open at this church. If you want to come and pray at the altar at any time, you can certainly do that. But I'm going to pray a closing prayer in just a few moments. And if you are here today or if you're watching online and you don't know Jesus, or you need to rededicate your life to him so that maybe some passion will come back into you to give you the desire to want to go out and do what Christ has asked us as disciples to do. While I pray, pray a simple prayer of your own. Acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, the only way to God the Father. Acknowledge the fact that he came to this earth. He lived a sinless and a perfect life, and he died a horrific death. The blood that he shed on that cross is, is what the atoning, is what atones for your sin. It's what wipes your sin away. Ask him to forgive you of your sin. Ask him to be the Lord of your life. If you're rededicating your life, say, I'm giving my life back to you. Once again, I want to give my life to you fully. I don't want to live on the fringe anymore. I'm all in. I don't want to be partially in. I want to be who you want me to be, Christ. He will answer that prayer. You can leave here today as a new creation or a renewed creation if you've kind of gotten rusty, if you've kind of walked away from him. And if you're on fire for God, this is not an issue for you. You're doing this regularly. I want you to pray that God will bring people into your path, that God will, will continue to burn that desire within you so that you're open to share your faith with others. Ask him to find one person to, 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 to reveal an individual to you that during the time that we do this series on John, you will see that they become a believer in Christ. If, at a minimum, that you will order that you will uh, invite them to come to church with you and at a maximum that you will sit down and you will tell them everything that you know about the Lord and why it is that they need a relationship with him. Would you pray that? And then pray that he will take away the fear that we all have about doing this because I'm going to tell you something. When you do it one time and you lead someone to the Lord and you experience what I talked about earlier and you see what a beautiful thing that it was, you will only want to do it again and again and again. That's how great soul winners are built. They never stop. They do it once. It's the most incredible experience of their life. They do it again. It's even more incredible. It just gets better. And that's what Christ wants us to do, all of us. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the 12 who set an example for us especially these first five who immediately went out to tell others. We see the template, Lord. We see the, the, the path we're to follow. And I pray that you would give us the strength and the courage and the ability to, to in fact, follow it. I pray that you would burn in each of our hearts a desire, a passion, an ongoing thought process that people we come into contact throughout the day are potential converts of Jesus to Jesus Christ, that they're lost, that they need that missing hole in their life plugged by a relationship with Jesus Christ, that they've tried to fill it every way possible and nothing has worked. And what they need is what we have and that we would not be stingy, but we would be loving. We would want to share the great things that have happened to us so that they can experience it themselves. So, Father, create a boldness within us, a passion, an ability, a desire to fulfill your commission. Make it a part of our fiber, a part of our daily being. And, Father, for those here today or watching online who do not know you, 
that today would be the day of salvation, that they would pray a simple prayer, have the courage to pray a simple prayer to you. Jesus, I believe you're the son of God and you came to this earth. You died on the cross. You died for me. It was personal. And the blood you shed covers my sin. So I ask you to forgive me of my sin. Make a new creation out of me as your word says. Fill me with your spirit, God. Bible says when you pray that with a sincere heart, you will receive salvation. You will be saved. God's spirit will now be a part of you, will indwell you. And then he will show you how to live your life. You're given a fresh start. God is a God of fresh starts. And it's a beautiful thing. And we as a church would love to come alongside of you and to help you in your Christian journey through our discipleship classes and being a part of the things that we do here. So Lord, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for speaking to us and showing us the way, showing us what we're supposed to do. Now God, help us to grab hold of it. Help us to run with it, to be faithful. And Lord, as we go our separate ways today, I ask that your spirit would go with us, guide in directing our steps, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have. Lord, that those conversations would be designed to build people up and not to tear them down. I ask that we would shine brightly in this very dark world. I ask, Lord, that your love would be so strong within us, that your light would shine so brightly through us that it doesn't matter who comes into contact with us during the day, that they would know that they know that they know that there is something different and that difference is the love of God in us. And when they mention that to us, that door would open and we would share your goodness. Father, I just ask that we would, we would be a loving people in this community, that we would look at those who we, we encounter every day as people who are desperately in need of you and that we would care about their salvation. So use us this week. I pray that you'll keep us safe until we gather together again next week. Keep us safe from COVID, from any other sickness or flu or disease. I also ask that you would keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us so that we can come together again as a church family and worship you in spirit and truth. Thank you for this day. I thank you for your presence. I thank you for those who we baptized this morning. As we go our ways, Lord, let us go in joy and in peace, leading others and pointing others to your direction. And I ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. I bless you. Thank you for being here.